Good evening, everyone. Um, very happy to welcome as our speaker this evening, Johannes Rössler from the University of Warwick. Um, Johannes works on philosophy of mind, epistemology, cognitive development, which I'm sure we could all do with a bit of. And um, he's published numerous articles on these different um, areas, and he's edited a number of um, significant volumes, again, on these different ones. Um, his title this evening is The Epistemic Role of Intentions. Now, there is a handout, but I understand that Johannes is actually going to read his paper, which, of course, was available beforehand. Um, if anyone hasn't got the hand, so the handout is a kind of map rather than what you'll be talking to. Thank you very much, Johannes. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, and I'm, I want to say I'm very grateful to Sarah, Matt, and Lucy um, for the invitation. Um, I'm going to try and speak without a microphone, but uh, if people uh, find they can't hear me very well, um, I'd be grateful if you could let me know before the end of the talk. Um, okay, thank you. There is a sharp divide in the recent literature between two attitudes to first-person knowledge of intentional action. Some philosophers take it to be a mark of such knowledge that it requires no grounds. Others regard it as a condition of adequacy on a philosophical theory of such knowledge that it should identify the relevant grounds. Now, a suggestive way to make sense of these attitudes has been proposed by David Vellemann. The idea that intending to do something typically provides for groundless knowledge of what one will do or is doing Vellemann suggests, is a central element of the common sense psychology of intentional agency. We are indebted to Anscombe and Hampshire for articulating that idea. But we are philosophers as well as common sense psychologists. And one question we should address as philosophers is whether our putative knowledge in this area is worthy of the name, as, as Vellemann puts it. If an affirmative answer to that question is to be defended, we need to establish that and how our beliefs in this area meet the usual requirements of evidential support. Again, that's a quote from Vellemann. A central aim of Vellemann's own well-known theory of practical self-knowledge is to show that the sense in which, from the naive standpoint, we take such knowledge to be groundless is consistent with a sense in which, as philosophers, we can make it intelligible in terms of its highly distinctive evidential support. In this paper, I won't be much concerned with the details of Vellemann's account of how the manifest and the philosophical image of practical self-knowledge um, fit together. My question is whether we should accept the starting point, um, the Vellemann's starting point, the idea that there is a manifest image of practical self-knowledge in the first place, specifically that there is a pre-theoretical understanding reflective agents have of the connection between intentions and groundless knowledge of what one does or, or will, will do, what is doing or will do. Um, I should say that when I talk about practical self-knowledge here, I use, this is a phrase Vellemann uses, and it simply means knowledge of what you're doing or knowledge of what you will be doing. There is no... Uh, sense of uh, the, the, the word practical isn't used in the uh, Anscombe semi-technical sense of practical knowledge. So he's simply talking about a certain kind of knowledge we have and there is no commitment to any view attached to the use of practical here. Okay. 
So my question is whether Bellman's starting point that there is a manifest image of practical self-knowledge can be defended. You might say that the idea is fanciful, given that ordinary members of the public usually take not the slightest interest in how they know what they are doing. Or you might insist that reflective agents are in fact familiar with some evidential basis, say a combination of introspection or observation or whatever your favorite philosophical theory suggests is the basis of, of self-knowledge. Um, some of Elements' remarks suggest that he takes his claims about the manifest image to be borne out by reflection on the phenomenology of agency. In acting intentionally, he maintains, you feel as if you know what you're doing without observation or evidence. I will set this line of argument to one side. Um, I want to focus on a different, and I think more promising, kind of considerations, which has to do with our reaction to a certain kind of challenge. Suppose you declare that you will attend the staff meeting tomorrow. And suppose someone were to challenge you to corroborate your claim. How can you tell, they ask, or what makes you think you will attend the meeting? Velleman makes two points about this kind of example. One is that you, or any reflective agent, would find this question not just surprising, but somehow misconceived. You would insist that you know without having to tell or without having to rely on evidence. The second point is that what explains and rationalizes this response is that you subscribe to a certain explanatory schema. The reason an agent knows her action without evidence, according to common sense, is that the action was her idea to begin with. It's what she had in mind to do. And that's a quote from Velleman. Okay, so let me put this, the, the upshot of this consideration formally, and this is CP on the handout. Um, according to common sense psychology, intending to phi normally puts one in a position to know one will phi without relying on any prior evidence that one will phi. Okay, by formulating CP in this way, I'm simplifying things in two, in two ways. First, I'll only be concerned with the case of knowledge of what one will do not of what one is currently doing. Velleman, I think, rightly takes an explanation of the former to have an important bearing on that of the latter. But the relationship between the two cases raises complex issues, for example, to do with the various roles perception play, um, uh, plays in monitoring and controlling bodily um, action. And these issues are not issues I will be looking at um, in this talk. Um, so I focus on the future case. Um, the second simplification is that in focusing on CP, I'm going to ignore a stronger thesis that features prominently in Velleman's discussion. Common sense, he maintains, credits agents with knowledge that is spontaneous, where that means generated from within. Um, and this, in turn, is glossed in terms of the thought that one acquires such knowledge by inventing an idea of what one will do. Um, this material is not easy to interpret, in my view, um, and it's harder still to find any support for it over and above the case for CP. Um, I suppose, I suspect, um, these claims are best seen as a description of how practical self-knowledge appears to us, of the manifest image, in terms that foreshadow the philosophical explanation of that appearance Velleman will eventually construct Specifically, his analysis of intention as a kind of belief and of practical reasoning as a matter, roughly, of jumping to conclusions. Um, 
CP, I think, offers a less loaded description of the, of the putative appearance. So I think, actually, even for Wellemann's own purposes, he would have done well to uh, focus on CP and uh, leave the stuff about spontaneity until the end, actually, when he's actually developed his theory. But that's, that's just a um, dialectical point. Okay, at this point, it's useful to distinguish three kinds of questions. First, is CP defensible? Second, how is the kind of explanation of self-knowledge CP attributes to common sense psychology actually supposed to work? Um, third, is the view of self-knowledge CP ascribes to common sense defensible? <coughs> okay. The second question I want to suggest holds the key to the other two questions. Velleman takes a notably austere view of the explanatory resources of common sense psychology. Our pre-theoretical understanding, he thinks, is merely concerned with how self-knowledge is acquired, not with whether what we have is actually knowledge, i.e. is worthy of the name. <clears throat> Common sense psychology is restricted to the cognit cognitive psychology of self-knowledge and has nothing to say about the epistemological question of how claims to knowledge in this area are to be defended. This view implies a clear division of labor between common sense and philosophy, on which Velleman's approach to the third question turns. For whether the common sense view is defensible, in his view, depends on what the correct epistemological theory has to say about the evidential basis of practical self-knowledge. And for those of you who are familiar with uh, Velleman's view on the theory he develops, of course, the naive view's denial that our knowledge is based on prior evidence does turn out to be correct. And practical knowledge, it transpires, rests on evidence from which it could not have been derived, because the evidence includes once having the very belief whose justification is in, is in question. Okay, now while Velleman's austere answer to the second question dovetails nicely with his conception of the project of assessing the common, common sense view, it causes trouble with the first question. The case for CP, recall, crucially depends on the idea that our pre-theoretical understanding of self-knowledge explains and rationalizes our rejection of the request for evidence. But it's hard to see how the common sense view can make it reasonable to think we are able to know without evidence if it, if it has nothing to say on how a claim to knowledge is to be corroborated. Okay, in the next section, I elaborate the challenge and suggest some reasons for thinking it can't be met um, under Velleman's austere analysis of the common sense view. Um, in the following section, um, I sketch an alternative, less austere answer to the second question, which can be extracted from Stuart Hampshire's discussion of, of, of self-knowledge in freedom of the individual. The basic idea here will be that the naive view of practical self-knowledge is inseparable from the naive view of practical reasoning. We think of practical reasoning as something that can warrant claims to knowledge. On that analysis, I will suggest CP has much plausibility. The problem from Velleman's perspective is that it now looks as if common sense psychology and an evidentialist epistemology offer rival accounts of what makes our knowledge worthy of the name. And I, I'll end by looking at, uh, at that um, potential conflict here. Okay, consider first Velleman's charge that philosophers such as Anscombe and Hampshire are guilty of a non sequitur. They're held plausibly enough that practical self-knowledge is not derived from prior evidence, but mistakenly concluded that therefore such knowledge requires no evidential grounds. 
The problem with this inference in Wellermann's view is not just that it is rendered invalid by the possibility that knowledge may rest on evidence from which it is not derived. He thinks rather that the inference involves a kind of category mistake. It moves from a claim of cognitive psychology about the way self-knowledge is acquired to a conclusion that belongs to epistemology, quote from Wellermann, since it's about self-knowledge is to be justified. In Wellermann's striking phrase, Anscombe and Hampshire try to save the common sense psychology of self-knowledge by elevating it to the status of epistemology. Yeah, one might object that, in general, information on how someone's knowledge that P was acquired, say by observation or by inference, has an utterly immediate bearing on how the claim that uh, the subject knows that P is to be defended or justified. But of course, Wellemann may argue that the case of practical self-knowledge is an exception to that rule. And perhaps common sense has merely a causal view, as it were, of how practical self-knowledge comes about, perhaps comparable to the way cognitive scientists might explain knowledge by appeal to brain activity, um, leaving open entirely how the attribution of knowledge is to be justified. Okay, so that's what I call the austere analysis of the common sense picture, uh, of the common sense um, view. The basic problem with this picture is that on the face of it, it's incompatible with the consideration Velleman uses to introduce and motivate the common sense view in the first place. For the question, how can you tell you will go to the meeting, or what makes you think you'll go to the meeting, is not a question raised from the detached perspective of cognitive psychology. It's at least, potentially, what Austin called a pointed question, bringing into play the possibility that you don't actually know what you claim to know, and requesting a reason to think that you do know. Correlatively, if you dismiss the question by insisting that you know without any need for evidence, you are insisting that your not relying on evidence does not impugn the credentials of your claim to knowledge. In Wellermann's terms, your response surely belongs to epistemology in that broad sense. We can reinforce this point by considering what you would say if your pre-theoretical understanding really were limited to the concerns of cognitive psychology. In that case, surely you could only be expected to say that, as a matter of fact, you consulted no evidence in arriving at your knowledge that you will come to the meeting. The obvious rejoinder would be that you had better start consulting evidence now, or else you should withdraw your claim to knowledge. At this point, you would have nothing sensible to say in response, for by stipulation, you would have no reason to think that you're in a position to know without relying on evidence. Okay, so I think that, that there is a seems to be a kind of mismatch between the resources attributed to the common sense view by Velleman and the work that view is expected to do, a mismatch that threatens to undermine the original argument for CP. As far as I can see, the most promising way to get around that problem, consistent with Velleman's project, would be to reinterpret the cognitive psychology point along functionalist lines. Common sense psychology, it might be said, has a naive theory of intentions involving numerous generalizations concerning the typical causes and typical effects intentions have, conditional on the agent's other mental states. One such generalization, it might be said, is that an intention to fight tends to go with, or perhaps generate, um, groundless knowledge that one will fight. 
And you might then say our grasp of that generalization could make it rational for us to attribute knowledge to intentional agents and to fend off the request for evidence. On the other hand, that wouldn't imply that we have any understanding of the reason why the generalization holds, i.e. the reason why intentions provide for knowledge. To get to the bottom of why our generalization holds, one would need to discover as it were, the realizer state that occupies the characteristic functional role of intentions. Velleman's epistemological theory, his view of intentions as beliefs that are justified partly through being self-fulfilling, might be read as an attempt to identify the psychological mechanisms realizing the common sense theory of intentional autonomous agency. Um, it might be so interpreted, I think it's really the way it's intended to be interpreted quite explicitly. So, so that's in, would in, be in favor of that interpretation, I think. But I think the functionalist interpretation is not really a satisfactory solution to the problem I've raised. How are we supposed to have acquired the critical generalization linking intention and knowledge? Presumably, as with the theory theory in the philosophy of mind, the idea would be that our naive theory is supported by evidence, insofar as it enables us to explain and predict observable phenomena. But then, once again, the common sense theory would have to be informed by concerns that Velleman thinks properly belong to epistemology. Evidence supporting the generalization would have to be evidence that the attitude usually associated with intentions is indeed knowledge. OK, I would like to speculate a bit at this point about how Velleman ended up with his strange picture of the common sense view as a kind of folk cognitive science. I want to highlight two factors to do with Velleman's reductive aspirations, both in epistemology and the philosophy of action. First, there is his deep commitment to an evidentialist epistemology. Um, that commitment and its depth um, may disable him from contemplating the possibility that anyone might find the credentials of a knowledge claim intelligible other than by displaying the evidential support enjoyed by the relevant belief. If common sense has no insight into the evidential basis of practical self-knowledge, that would mean it can have no inkling of how such knowledge is worthy of the, of its name, of, of the name of knowledge. The second factor, I think, um, or a second factor, lies in Velleman's reductive view of practical reasoning as a, in his, in his terms, a mode of theoretical reasoning um, where this is supposed to involve the formation of expectations about one's actions by jumping to conclusions on the basis of insufficient evidence regarding one's motives, expectations that are said to constitute intentions in virtue of their distinctive functional role. I take it to be obvious, I, 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 hope, I hope it is obvious, um, that's not how we ordinarily think about practical reasoning and intentions. Nor does Velleman claim it is. What he assumes, though, is that we can articulate the common sense psychology of practical self-knowledge without paying heed to the common sense view of practical reasoning. From his point of view, the two are importantly different because um, only the former is susceptible to a philosophical vindication. I think he, he, with the common sense view of practical reasoning, he would have no, no hesitation in just being completely revisionist. Um, I think that assumption that you can get a handle on the uh, common sense view of self-knowledge independently of the common sense view of reasoning 
makes it unsurprising that Velleman ends up with a picture on which common sense has no idea as to why the generalization linking intentions and knowledge holds. For its arguably practical reasoning, as ordinarily conceived, that constitutes, as it were, the categorical basis of intention's tendency to provide for knowledge of one's intentional actions. I think an extremely helpful and rather neglected way to spell out this thought can be found in Hampshire's discussion of self-knowledge in freedom of the individual. Um, so in the next section, I will suggest that Hampshire's account yields a plausible defense of CP. Hampshire's account, unlike Velleman's account, yields a plausible defense of CP. Um, and I will leave open the interesting question of to, to what extent Hampshire's account differs from Anscombe's. Anscombe's is, of course, better known, but in some ways uh, harder to understand, I think. Um, in the last section, I consider where this leaves Velleman's distinction between the, the naive and the philosophical perspective um, on self-knowledge. Okay. Um, Hampshire's discussion um, revolves around a distinctive kind of statement and the basis that licenses the statement. The statement is, um, I shall come to the meeting. Or I, I should say it's, it's actually um, Hampshire will come to the meeting um, because he imagines um, this being the message uh, written on a postcard that he sends to the secretary. Hampshire will come to the meeting. And then he compares that with a, with a postcard sent, sent by a friend, um, which um, makes me wonder what our administrator would make of it, uh, would be making of it if I sent her a, a message, Rustler will come to the meeting. Um, it's just those were the days. Um, so the statement is, I shall come to the meeting. Its putative basis consists of the proposition that it would be a great mistake for him not to attend the meeting and that he will be able to go or not as he chooses. Okay, so it would be a mistake not to go to the meeting and he's able to go if he chooses to. Um, I first discuss Hampshire's central thesis about the, 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 the statement and its basis um, before looking at the naive epistemology of self-knowledge that can be derived from it. Okay, here. It's sometimes said that um, it's a structural element of practical reasoning that a judgment that one has most reason to find licenses the formation of an intention to find with no need for an extra mediating step consisting of, say, an expression of the desire to do what one takes oneself to have, to have most reason to do. Okay, so that extra step might be invoked or has been invoked by out of human concern with motivation. And it's then sometimes said um, that there is no need for that extra mediating premise. The idea here is that to demand such an extra step would be to misrepresent something that belongs to the structure of practical reasoning as an additional input or premise for such reasoning. In that way, the demand would be reminiscent of Lewis Carroll's tortoises insistence that we only have a reason to accept the conclusion of a deductive argument if the relevant rule of inference is represented as an extra premise. OK, I won't pursue that debate about um, the um, license for forming an intention um, here. But I want to suggest that Hampshire can be seen to make an analogous claim. Um, it is a structural element of practical reasoning, he argues, that the judgment that I have most reason to attend the meeting can license the statement, I will come to the meeting. The statement has what he calls a double aspect. 
It makes, it, in making it, one aims to express both the intention to attend the meeting and knowledge that one will attend the meeting. So the structural element point um, means that practical reasoning can warrant not only the formation of an intention, but at the same time what Hampshire calls a statement of fact about the future. Without the need for any extra step consisting, say, of the premise that one usually does what one intends to do. Okay, so that's the claim. Uh, and again, I think it's on the handout. Um, we can probe Hampshire's structural claim um, by considering pot potential counterexamples. You may intend to move a log blocking your driveway without being convinced that you will succeed, as Michael Bradburn um, has argued. In that situation, you don't think that your practical reasoning warrants the claim that you will move the log. And surely you may be right about this. If, furthermore, you know that you're liable to bouts of forgetfulness, you may not even take yourself to be entitled to claim that you will try to move the log. Cases such as these might be thought to bring to light a general gap between intentions and warranted statements of facts about the future. They may encourage not just a conclusion in the philosophy of action, that intending to fight doesn't entail believing one will fight, but also an epistemological conclusion that there is a gap between practical reasoning and beliefs about what one will do. Bradman, I think, draws both conclusions. Um, on, on the epistemological issue, he, he holds that an intention to fight normally provides the agent with support for a belief that he will fight, um, so that which suggests that we come to know what we will do by inference, by inference from our current intention and our estimate of the likelihood of our getting done or even trying to get done what we intend to do. Okay, how should a defender of Hampshire's structural claim respond to that challenge? Some would insist that attributions of intentions do entail attributions of belief, and Brian O'Shaughnessy memorably um, uh, claimed that um, practical commitment necessitates cognitive commitment. It is simply not consistent with cognitive sitting on the fence. Um, others think that while, as it were, unconfident intentions may be possible, they would be irrational, intending to fight commits to the belief that one will fight. But I think defenders of Hampshire's claim might also consider a weaker response, which really accepts the substance of what, uh, what Velleman uh, wants to say about these cases. The idea here would be that even though the practical reasoning in Bradman's cases is not faulty or irrational, it is nevertheless not wholly successful. Intuitively, your plan to move the log is kind of suboptimal. It would be better to find a method that only involves things you know you'll be able to do. This intuition, one may argue, reflects the essential objective of calculative practical reasoning, to find a means that will enable one to attain a given end. Only if you know you'll be able to act as intended can you think of your reasoning as genuinely successful practical reasoning relative to your objective of removing the log. One might add that we have been given no reason to think Bratman's cases can be prototypical. In the log case, the formation of the intention to move the log is informed not by your knowledge that you will be able to do so, but merely by the weaker premise that you may be able to do so. But of course, your plan will involve many things you know you'll be able to do, such as leaving the house, walking to the drive, and so on. In fact, it might be said it's, it's not easy to envisage practical reasoning that does not draw on knowledge about one's practical abilities at any point. 
Insofar as it does, one might insist, Hampshire's structural claim holds. To refuse to accept the statement of fact that you will fight when you know you will be able to fight and have formed the firm intention to fight would amount to a confusion about the structure of practical reasoning akin to the tortoise's confusion. Okay, so there's obviously a, 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 a whole lot more to be said about um, this debate. Um, but now, for current purposes, supposing that um, Hampshire's structural claim can be defended, how does it bear on the explanation of self-knowledge? Okay, well, here I, I suggest we should rely on the plausible idea that to make an assertion, um, that in making an assertion, you aim to express knowledge. So for an assertion to be correct, it has to express knowledge. Okay, with that, kind of armed with that, I take it plausible thought, we can say, if practical reasoning entitles you to a statement of fact, then it's plausible that it can help to make it intelligible how you are in a position to know the fact in question. For it puts you in a position, for it entitles you to express, to make a claim to knowledge, in effect. Now, one might be tempted to put this by saying that you gain knowledge of what you will do by expressing your intention. And that's actually a formulation Charles Taylor once used. Um, the problem is that this makes it sound as if you do, after all, use a method of discovery for gaining knowledge. So you, um, you do something in order to gain knowledge, you express your intention. Um, but this is not so. Um, as Hampshire stresses, the question to which the double aspect statement, I shall come to the meeting, is the answer is a practical question of what to do. Um, in the normal case, as he puts it, my concern is, with, is not with what I should say, but with what I should do. Um, so I think it's better to stick with the um, formulation that practical reasoning can put one in a position to know what one will do. Um, importantly, on Hampshire's analysis, this kind of explanation is one that is available to reflective agents in general. Even a non-philosopher who claims she will come to the meeting will find the knowledge expressed in her statement unmysterious in the light of the practical reasoning on which her statement is based. Um, this shouldn't be taken to mean that she has a good answer to the question, how do you know you'll come to the meeting? For that question is naturally heard as a question about the means by which she obtained her knowledge. And as indicated in the normal case, she will not have employed any such means. Still, her awareness of the grounds that warrant her claim provides her with a, 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 with a response to the question that features in Bellman's argument for CP, how can you tell you will go to the meeting? To be warranted to make the statement, I'll come to the meeting, one must know that one will come. Successful, successful practical reasoning provides one with a warrant for that statement. Thus, practical reasoning puts one in a position to know. Specifically, given the nature of practical reasoning, to know without relying on evidence. Of course, evidence may play a crucial role in establishing whether, one is, whether it, is, it is in one's power to go to the meeting. But that kind of evidence is not the basis on which one reaches the judgment that one will go. The judgment is based on practical considerations um, leading one to form the intention to go. So the, the basic thought here would be that the reason we do not find our knowledge intelligible in terms of evidence, and the reason we have for refusing or rejecting the request for evidence, is that we do find our knowledge intelligible in some other way 
namely in terms of practical reasoning. Okay, in summary, um, I suggest we can extract from Hampshire's discussion a promising combination of answers to the first two questions, whether CP is defensible and how the kind of explanation CP attributes to common sense works. I want to conclude by considering how a Hampshire-inspired defense of CP would bear on the third question, whether the view CP attributes to common sense is actually defensible. As we saw, um, Velleman has a strongly held view of what it would take to vindicate common sense. If your knowledge in this area, if our knowledge in this area is worthy of the name, he insists it must be open to what we may call a belief-based explanation, an explanation that validates a claim to knowledge by showing that the underlying belief meets certain general conditions. On Velleman's specific view, the conditions are what he calls the usual requirements of evidential support. And there's, of course, a big question about exactly how that should be read, but that is not important for current purposes. Uh, what matters is that it's an example of a belief-based um, explanation because it works by... Um, exhibiting um, the support um, um, enjoyed by, by your, your beliefs or the way beliefs meet general conditions for knowledge. So we can break down the third question into two sub-questions. Is it possible to vindicate the common sense view as characterized by Hampshire through a belief-based explanation of practical self-knowledge? Um, and uh, B, what would follow from a negative answer to A? Again, that's on the handout. So the first question, is it possible to vindicate the common sense view if we now interpret it along Hampshire's lines um, through a belief-based explanation? And the second question is, if it's not possible, then what would follow from that? Okay, so the first thing to note is that the simple-minded epistemology Hampshire articulates is not itself an example of a belief-based explanation. The question why he believes he will attend the meeting simply does not figure in his discussion. His focus throughout is on the warrant he has for the statement or assertion that he will attend the meeting. That warrant bears on the epistemology of self-knowledge given that assertions aim to express knowledge. If his practical reasoning provides him with a warrant for his assertion and a correct assertion is one that expresses knowledge, then practical reasoning must put him in a position to know. There is no mention here of any evidence or anything else that might plausibly be construed as a good reason to believe he will attend the meeting. That doesn't mean there is no such reason. Reflection on his knowing that he will go to the meeting would no doubt give Hampshire a compelling reason to think that he will go, to, to believe that he will go. But we can't, construe, we can't construct a belief-based explanation by invoking that sort of reason, for the reason presupposes, and hence can't explain Hampshire's knowing that he will go. Okay, so then the question is whether the explanatory link between practical reasoning and knowledge, as characterized by Hampshire, is in some sense underpinned by a belief-based explanation. Um, I think the shift from elements to Hampshire's analysis of the common sense view makes it much harder to see how this kind of picture could be made to work. Um, on Hampshire's account, common sense involves a positive view of how claims to self-knowledge are to be defended by reference not to evidence or epistemic reasons, but to successful practical reasoning. Um, 
while on, on Wellemann's account, the common sense view is not much more than a placeholder for a philosophical explanation, Hampshire's picture suggests the two are potentially in competition. Okay, to see this, and I, I would just want to illustrate this thought, to see this, consider the following stab at a belief-based explanation that you might say underpins the explanatory link um, Hampshire, Hampshire um, talks about. Um, it might be said that we form beliefs about future actions by using a certain procedure. This is very, very vaguely reminiscent of what Evans has to say about the way we um, know about our own beliefs. We form, a, so here's the procedure, we form a firm intention to fight and then in a separate step endorse or accept an expression of that intention by judging I will fight. Okay, so first we form the intention, then we use an expression of that intention to acquire belief about what we will be doing. That would be the idea. Um, one might then go on, go on to argue that beliefs formed in this way can be seen to meet the general conditions for knowledge given certain relevant characteristics of the procedure. It may be, in some, for reasons you might want to explain, it may, may be knowledge conducive. Um, so this would be one way, incidentally, um, in, in, in passing, this would be one way to read Kevin Falvey's suggestion um, in an interesting paper that uh, we have a general warrant to employ or present expressions of intentions as descriptions of what we are doing um, or, or will do. So a kind of double use and of, of a, a second use of expressions of intentions as descriptions. Um, I'm not sure if Falvey's suggestion is intended to be read as referring to this kind of procedure, I should say. I think the problem with this is that it's, it would clearly amount to a revision, not a vindication of the view Hampshire puts forward. The idea of a procedure for forming beliefs about one's actions is surely inconsistent with Hampshire's structural thesis. Practical reasoning would only get us to the formation of an intention. It would take a further step, the use of the procedure, to answer the factual or theoretical question of what one will actually do. Yet, according to Hampshire's thesis, the same judgment can simultaneously provide an answer to the practical and the theoretical question. Okay, I don't intend these remarks to rule out the possibility of a belief-based explanation. Um, there may be ways to get around the difficulties facing that project. Um, still, I think the difficulties at least motivate a closer look at question B, which is the question, what if no belief-based explanation is available? On Velleman's evidentialist outlook, the answer is obvious. If our knowledge cannot be seen to meet the general requirements of evidential support, it will not be worthy of the name. For him, what is at stake in a philosophical belief-based explanation of self-knowledge is whether the common sense view can be saved. This is a quote from, from, from Velleman. Um, a negative answer to question A would obviously mean that it cannot be saved. So we would have to think of it as a kind of folk epistemology that from the vantage point of a philosophical theory um, turns out to be untenable. Okay, one way to try to resist this analysis of the dialectical situation, which is, I think, the one Velleman is committed to, would be to argue that abandoning the naive view of self-knowledge would, as it were, take with it much more than Velleman allows. The kind of skeptical conclusion he envisages that common sense view turns out to be something that can't be saved, 
would in effect amount to a denial that we ever engage in practical reasoning as ordinarily conceived, i.e. reasoning that involves the structural element highlighted by Hampshire. The next question would be whether this would still leave room for the thought that people sometimes act intentionally. Intentional actions are explained in terms of the agent's reasons, and in giving such explanations, it may be argued, we think of the action as the outcome of the agent's practical reasoning as ordinarily conceived. Okay, now there's obviously a rather lively debate in the philosophy of action on, on these issues, but suppose that's right. Um, it would then suggest that the skeptical threat on which Velleman plays it not is not just the threat that a certain view of how we know about intentional actions turns out to be mistaken, but the more radical threat that um, we never do anything intentionally, or it, that it turns out that we never do anything intentionally. One moral to draw from this analysis um, might be to question the demand for a belief-based explanation. It's, after all, a substantive claim that an explanation of our possession of knowledge um, can only be made good, sorry, can only be any good if it can be underwritten by an account in terms of evidential support or some other belief-based account. So explanations of knowledge only work if you can show, as it were, the belief-based mechanisms, un mechanisms underpinning it. Um, if that claim were to, turn out, uh, were to turn out to be in conflict with the view that we sometimes do things intentionally, and then perhaps we would have a good reason to abandon the claim rather than the view that we sometimes do things intentionally. Okay, in conclusion, I've tried to defend Velleman's idea that we have a pre-theoretical understanding of the epistemic role of intentions. But I've argued that Velleman underestimates the sophistication of that understanding. I've also raised some doubts about the prospects of vindicating the naive view in the tribunal of an evidentialist epistemology. And I've suggested that this might lead us to reconsider the demand for such a vindication. Thank you. Thanks.